0: Nice, I got the notification. Okay, if we're ready, let's try it. Uh, Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, the Writers Guild of Alberta podcast series, sponsored by Read Alberta. Um, This is a conversation between uh, two writers, myself, Mike Langston, and Carissa Halton. We're going to be talking about research in all of its various facets. Um, So we'll start off by introducing each other. Uh, Then we'll talk, uh, ask each other some questions about our respective research processes and we'll each do a reading from uh, current work or a work in progress. So I'm going to introduce Carissa Halton, my uh, co-panelist and co-host. Carissa Halton's essays have appeared in Today's Parent, Alberta Views, Post Media Newspapers, as well as various anthologies, earning her a National and Alberta Magazine Award. Her debut book, Little Yellow House, Finding Community in a Changing Neighborhood, explores life, heartbreak, and resilience in Alberta Avenue, and was a finalist for the 2019 Edmonton Book Prize. Carissa is working on a novel. Hi, Carissa. Ah,
1: hi, Mike. Thanks for that. Well, I'm going to introduce uh, Michael Hingston. He's a writer, publisher in Edmonton. He's the author of the books Let's Go Exploring and The Dilettantes, and co-author of um, Har Harn Ryan Singh's memoir, One Game at a Time. Hingston's writing has appeared in Wired, in National Geographic, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. He's also the co-founder of Hingston and Olson Publishing, um, makers of the short story, uh, sorry, Hingston and Olson Publishing, makers of the short story, Advent Calendar, and other literary experiments. Hingston's new book is Try Not to Be Strange, The Curious History of the Kingdom of Redonda, which will be published by Biblioasis in September. It's awesome to be here with you, Mike.
0: Yeah, this is gonna be fun. I'm excited we got paired up about research because, um, well, I'm sort of new to it. So like this, my current project sort of forced me to learn how to research in a way that I didn't really know how to do before. And I'm, uh, maybe my first question for you actually is about sort of your origins as a researcher, because research isn't sort of only for its own sake. We're, We're, as writers, we're researching specific things. So I just wanted to know how did you get into research? Did you get forced into it by an idea that sort of made you have to go into an archive, or how did how did you get started in this this area?
1: Well, yeah, like I, uh, so for my the, the most research intensive project that I've done is this mo- is the most recent one I'm working on. It. My nonfiction work has mostly been you know, more memoir oriented. And so a lot of the research was just like living my life and being contemplative and, you know, and maybe asking some questions, finding some sources. But um, this project came about when I was at this museum in my hometown. And I found just this little statement that talked about this communist council that had been in Blairmore, Alberta in the 1930s. And it had being the only communist council in all of North America. And then it kind of dissolved the museum, this little short piece described. It dissolved because the mayor had hired a police chief who got caught in this blackmailing of the sex workers, John's. So it was like basically the whole council dissolved it Was sort of the story was that basically they'd work to blackmail these clients in this small town, brothel, and you know, then the council fell, right? And so of course, you know, there's sex, there's communism, and it was just like I was so curious, like what what happened like how could that be who's the woman like because they didn't name the brothel worker and the madame they didn't name her I like who did they blackmail they didn't say that did they blackmail the rich guys because that's really interesting but you know were they you know so there's so many questions that I had both about the council specifically who'd like actually created the civic holiday for the Russian revolution and when they came into power they taxed all the pedigree dogs so that they couldn't raise money and of course, all the pedigree dogs are owned by mine managers. So there's like all like it just like the story, I guess, in terms of the research, this, the, the, this tiny little museum sort of piece really sparked just a million questions. And, and there was really no other way to write the book without doing research, right? Because it, it just, it forced me to have to dive into the archives, dive into all sorts of things. And I know we'll talk about that. So, so I guess for me, yeah. I was completely... Whole, like I went in like you I guess feeling quite um quite new to it I've gone to university I knew how to do research in that way but I never spent time in archives so I didn't know how to find get the you know get the archive what I could ask an archivist I didn't know whether I could email them I didn't know if I could go into the back rooms so there's so many questions that ultimately I had about research that just evolved through my own curiosity I just force myself to say ask embarrassing questions and be open to them telling me like that's not your business you can't have that information or or being a bit more persistent about it right so I guess i've learned over time um, also where to find things and that's just mostly been to, getting in touch with other researchers and other academics who are in the field of this specific area of interest I've, you know, gained. And, and those researchers, I think like, especially the academic researchers, because most of the work I'm doing requires, or like has really lots of like kind of really nerdy researchers looking into the, you know, into police, you know, security over the last hundred years, these sorts of things. And I feel like each, Interview that I've had with these experts have like shown me other different little nuggets of research that are in all sorts of different places, either in the internet or in museums or in archives. And each of those things has sort of helped me uncover the next interesting fact. So, so it's Mm -hmm. kind of been a trail of crumbs for me, I guess I would say. So, my question for you, I think, is like, uh, was it's a little bit about this line too, is like, what for you has come first, like the research or the story? you know, this plot idea of the book?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely, the research came second uh, or last or wherever in the process would be. Like, I I don't, I started as a fiction writer and like you, a lot of my nonfiction was sort of like drawing from my own life or you'd interview a living person and they would just tell you the answer. It was just interesting and rewarding, but like fairly straightforward. Um, the book is... is I'm still fine tuning my like short version of this, of describing what this book is. So my best attempt is there is an Island in the Caribbean that is completely empty. It's surrounded by like sheer cliffs. Humans have almost never been there with like some minor exceptions. And yet for the last 150 years, a group of writers have all claimed to be the King of this Island. So my book is the history of this semi fictitious, mythical whimsical it's a joke but is it really a story that has carried on for ever since 1860 and and is very much contested and continues to this day there are factions there are various people who say that they're the king because the previous king said that they could be the king the other thing about this story is that um, the writers often have nothing in common with one another so aside from their sort of allegiance to the story um we've got like the title being handed down on people's deathbeds. We've got people t- signing blood pacts where they actually cut open their wrists and mix blood together. And the main way that the story sort of exists is there's a court. And so the king can name people to the court. And as a court member, a Duke or a Duchess or whatever your title is, you have to produce works about the kingdom. So all of that being said, this story is very strange and e- even among the kings are very strange themselves. The title of the book is called try not to be strange and none of them are able to do it. But <laughs> the, the idea is that it's always sort of like a footnote in their biographies. Like no one really knows what to make sense of these. Like when they die, it's sort of like, do you even put it in the obituary or is it just, a, a, is it nonsense? And so the, the challenge for this was that most of it was not written down in, a, in like a reputable way. It existed in tabloid newspapers, um, privately published poems and pamphlets. When people would produce works about the kingdom, um, like one of the kings commissioned his his various dukes and they were well-known poets, like Dylan Thomas wrote poems about Redonda, but they were so little known that even Dylan Thomas's bibliographer did not know they existed. They don't appear in his bibliography or his early bibliographies. Um, So just finding this material was actually incredibly difficult. Uh, A lot of it existed as like oral tradition And I don't mean like a lofty version of that. I mean like in pubs. So when I got interested in this story, because it has shown up in a couple of uh, sort of reputable places, I first read about it in a novel and found that it was real. Um, It became this quest to find these like scraps and these, um, they're not exactly reliable, but they're, they're, they're all sort of fragments of the story. And so the book became trying to find and assemble hundreds of these little fragments. So it was, Once I had this this concept in my head of this kingdom, it was, I really fell down the rabbit hole. And the book actually sort of has two parts. There's one part is the history of the kingdom over the last 150 years. And the second part is the sort of first person quest narrative, which is me learning about the kingdom. And just, it's like a rabbit hole with no bottom, like it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. And so for our for talking about research is fun because in the book, I actually really spell out the research project and, and trying to learn how to do it. Like exactly what you said, when you go into an archive, what are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? You know, what are the rules? Like, I just had no idea. And, um, so research came last, but then also became like a secondary chunk of the book in, uh, in what I hope is a, an engaging way. It felt like you needed me there because otherwise there's no one to comment on like how strange this soul story is. And so having the me as the proxy for the reader hopefully gets that across.
1: Oh, I can't wait to read it.
0: Yeah, long time coming. Well, as you know, mm-hmm. research heavy projects, this is how it goes, right? So suddenly so you're huge. like you, and, and I think I liked what you said before about how it is like breadcrumbs. It's like you go in looking for one thing and then you just find more. There's more. It's it's like on the one hand, it's surprising how how member how this information can slip away, but also like there are traces out there. And when you find, you think like, "Oh, I'll never figure this out." And then one day you find the piece of paper that has the answer on it. And I don't I don't know if you've had a lot of those moments. Um, we can come to it, but um, one of those can keep you going for like a long time. And um, then you
1: almost have this pile of ma- a massive pile of breadcrumbs and you're like holy hell how wh- what should yeah. I do with them all I mean we'll get to that too but yeah like um yeah it's an exciting place it's it's the finding of it though is so exciting I've always been um I've loved secondhand stores all my life and I mm-hmm. feel like research feeds whatever it is in me that a secondhand store feeds it's just like the hunt for the treasure right and and if you just spend another couple more hours in this box you know maybe i don't know i maybe i'll find who knows what nudie pictures i mean we found in the one museum we found um uh because one of the people i was researching was a photographer and we found a bunch of naked pictures of women um in wearing various coal miner paraphernalia (laughs) so there were it was kind of minor porn you know from the 30s which was amazing. So this is the stuff though that just huh. like sucks you in and I just every new box that I would open I'm like what am I going to find, right? So anyway, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's can, its own so thing. maybe go ahead.
0: Just on that point, um can you tell me about like your process? So when you you see this plaque and then like literally where did you where did you end up looking for material and and how did you know where to look?
1: Okay, I got to go back. So I'm thinking, I feel like I first started, I first started with this one master's thesis that this guy um, had done in, you know, 10 years before, well, in the kind of early aughts, and it was all about the Red Council essentially. And so I started with this one master's thesis, which um, ultimately gave me all this. I mean, it gave me the names of the men who were part of the council. um, And then it gave me the name of the police chief. Right. Um, And then um, from there, I started kind of building out the picture. I I really did start with the characters, I think in my head because I thought, okay, to figure out the story, I need to figure out who was there because that's Mm -hmm. the easiest thing to search really is the name of a person, both in ancestry.ca and in in newspapers.com. Both those um, subscriptions while expensive were really, are are really important, have been really important for the last three years of of my research because I'll find a name and I can just search it up in those two you know, databases. And yep. you know, if it's a unique name, often I can find it. And so it didn't take me long to find the name of the woman who was charged alongside the police chief for this blackmailing of, of the of the Johns, right? And um, and so from there I ended up going, um, I went to the archives because I knew that you could find court transcripts at the provincial archives here in Alberta. And so I think that was the very first time I went down to the Provincial Archives, which is like, you know, in this kind of industrial area in, you know, in South Edmonton. And, um, oh, my God, like, if I could live there, I probably could. I would because, you know, you go in and it's so quiet. It's like... There's no, there's it's like a library, you know, again, lots of little drawers that you can find, all sorts of treasures, you don't know what's in them. But of course, Mm -hmm. um, the the archivist was really helpful in terms of, I said, this is who I'm looking for. There was a court case around this date. I knew the date because of the newspapers, newspaper.com, as well as actually U of A has this, um, for anybody who's researching in Alberta, they have, um, it's called Peel's, um, Peel's archives, I think. And basically they have, all of these small town rural papers um, there and, and in a way that they actually you can't find them anywhere else. Um, and so Blair Moore's Enterprise, which was, you know, the newspaper at the time, all of their archives from the 1930s are in the Peel's Archives Library. So I was able to access that all from my home computer. And of course, and it was really easily searchable. So I could put Leona Cudmore, her name in there, and boom, I could see, you know, when when she when they were up to court, but then also when she died. And so, of course, all these things started unraveling, right? Because, in oh, she died and she died just before the court case. So, but one of the most fun things, uh, you know, is I did get the transcript for this court case because they'd had a preliminary hearing. And of course, now I've also learned all these things I didn't know about the law, like the process of the law and the preliminary hearing. What's the difference between that and like the trial and uh, do you need a jury? Because, of course, I'm trying to write and construct these scenes in the courtroom right um which was you know very raucous and at the time you know many people in town thought that this was what they called it spite work so they felt like the that the police they felt like the lawyers in the town and they thought that felt like the justice system like with the judge who was you know a known you know guy who came in every every week they felt like these men had it out for the red council and this was one way to try and bring them down and so that was of course one of my main questions that i had which was really important for me to sort of name what's my question here because without the question the research becomes like everywhere right like and so i had to kind of keep coming back to the question and my question at that time the project has expanded so far from where we are talking right now but at that time the question was what um did basically, was this spite work? Did the blackmailing actually happen? Did the sex act actually happen? Or was this something that was kind of cooked up in order to try and bring this? I mean, and let's remember the 1930s, you know, at this time we've had, we have most of the superpowers in the world who want who really think Hitler's actually probably a good thing for Germany. We we have people that want Hitler sort of to stand between them and Stalin, right? So mm-hmm. at the time in the, the early 1930s, we're talking about a world that in many ways were was more anti-Stalin than it was anti-fascist, right? And so having this little communist council pop up like basically out of North America's arsehole right and be like hey Stalin's here right like everyone was out of their minds right in fact the provincial government they create they made a law they had to go and change the education act in 1935 so that no more towns and and school board councils could create civic holidays because Blairmore did it they created this Russian revolution civic holiday they replaced Uh Armistice Day, literally, they replaced the King's, oh. you know, celebration of Remembrance Day um, with the Russian Revolution, right? So it's a huge, big middle finger, right, to capitalism and to mine bosses everywhere. And so that central research question for me was really, was really the thing that got me digging in to the court transcripts, which I ended up paying, I think it was the thing I paid the most money for. I paid about 120 bucks for this, uh, basically the whole file Um, on on this preliminary hearing. And so it gave me all sorts of douchey tidbits about oral sex of the time and and the ways that they manage their um, diseases. The transcripts actually openly described the the schedule of the sex workers, um, you know, when they woke up, what they were eating. They were eating pancakes at like one in in the afternoon, what they wore at one in the afternoon. So the transcripts I, I discovered uh, I mean, it just was actually chilling how much amazing detail was in those transcripts, you know, and you got to get the personality of the people in a way that you don't get from any uh, academic sort of um, book or, or paper. So, so yeah, oh. so that was, that was sort of where where I started and how I ended up squirreling into, into it a bit deeper. Um, but yeah, and I'm curious, I, I mean, you actually had to I'm assuming to travel to places, but maybe you didn't. So I'm curious about, you know, this being a a story about a very physical place. um, Where were all the different places that you spent time in search for, you know, the stories and the color and the facts, of course, too?
0: Yeah. Um, So it's a funny story because there's sort of two ways to think of the kingdom. And then the book obviously sort of breaks this down a bit more, but there's the people who care about sort of the island as a, as a place in the Caribbean. And then there's the people who only care about the sort of literary story that pops up around it. And so most people involved in the kingdom today, I would say are in the second camp. So they're interested in in the lineage. They're interested in the science fiction novelist who gave it to the poet, who gave it to the vegetarian publisher. And like, there's sort of a cast of eccentric characters that runs that way. And so at first I was doing mostly that side of the work. Um, So when I was looking for these scraps of writing, um, I was basically just trying to find and buy these books, like strange books. Um, they're not particularly expensive, but they're hard to find. And you never know what's in them. Like, I was never really sure what would... Because ha- the thing is, they didn't... These raiders didn't talk about the kingdom in their work necessarily. They were interested in other things as well. So if I'm trying to find these sort of peripheral details... It's not the sort of information that a catalog, a secondhand bookseller is going to necessarily catalog or explain properly. So I'm just sort of buying stuff at random. And that was fun as a collector, but maybe not the most useful use of my time that way. <laughs> um, but at the same time, okay, can you, I, can look you look. say
1: how much money did you spend on books? Are you able to say, do you know uh, how many books the
0: most, did you buy? The most, ex- well, I have a glass cabinet that's devoted to Renata right now. That's just yeah. off camera. Um, that has like two and a half full shelves of stuff. The most expensive book I bought was for $500. Well, okay, there's a caveat coming, but that book cost $500 and it was the second King's personal copy of the first King's bibliography.
1: Oh my God. Yes. And
0: this is, this is a thing that's like opened me up to this idea of association copies. So it, it, you're not just looking at one particular text or one particular edition, but one particular copy of it. Uh, Obviously, these are rarer and harder. They're unique by definition. Um, And I was just, I just loved the idea of owning a book that this guy had owned. Um, And the note that the bookseller had written on his website said that it had marginalia from the previous owner. And so that's why I bought, I was looking for this information. And sure enough, there's this whole story about the first king He was estranged from his kids, kind of a strange guy. His name's M.P. Shield, who was a science fiction writer, uh, who was born in the Caribbean. That's where the story started. He was born there and his father gifted him the island as a birthday present. And then he went to England and and then told the story there. Um, But when he died, only 13 people were at his funeral. He was sort of a forgotten writer and estranged from like a lot of his family and friends. And in this book that I bought, the second king, his predecessor, his successor, John Gosworth, actually wrote out in pencil the name of all 13 people at the funeral amazing. and that was amazing that's the sort of thing that like no one oh knows and like no one has known that's even people who, who followed this story would don't know that and so that's the sort of thing that when you find it you just are it, it can power you through months and months of finding nothing at all because suddenly you have this even just a tiny piece of information that you can write down and and compile and preserve in a way that I think otherwise, you know, maybe no one would ever uh, think to to share. So it started with books. And then I found out pretty quickly, there's a lot of archival material um, sort of scattered around. So I hired a couple of people in special collections, uh, someone in Iowa, someone in uh, Austin, Texas, and someone else helped me in Sussex, England, And they it's interesting you talked about the question because it's really funny when you try and tell someone else to go through something for you because you it's so hard to explain what you want. Like they'll they would flip. We actually did I did Zoom. This was a I think early pandemic maybe or just before. We did Zoom calls where like the guy the people would like hold up a piece of paper and say, like, do you want a photocopy of this? And I would, you know, it's they have no idea. Like, and to me, I'm like, obviously, yes. But like they just don't, they can't see the question the way that you can. So yeah, it is true, you have to be clear if you're working with someone else, because otherwise there's just so much material, you get swamped. Um, so that happened, I, I ha- managed to shoehorn a trip to an archive myself while I was on vacation in England, um, in the University of Reading. There's a big archive there of, of one of the King's materials, so I had a day there. Um, I interviewed a bunch of kings and queens uh, who are current or former claimants to the throne. And they've, a bunch of them have sent me material as did spouses and daughters uh, of previous like amateur historians of the kingdom. Cause it's, it sounds like there's archives of this sort of clutter in people's attics that like the spouses don't know what to do with. So they were happy to send it to me. At least they figured I would do something with it. Uh, and then the book sort of culminates in, um, I went to the Caribbean and I went to this Island and tried to see if I could get there. Um, to fulfill the second side of it right the first part is the literary side and then you're like well, at a certain point you want to go see the island itself and it actually turns out there's some amazing work happening on the island from scientists and environmentalists uh, many of whom who knew nothing about the literary kingdom so it was neat to sort of cross those two worlds over yeah uh, i have a question for you and and i wonder if research plays a role in this decision so we're it sounds like we're starting from similar points in like we hear about a cool story but it's in miniature And you just wonder about the gaps in the story. Um, And you went turned to fiction with it. And I'm wondering, did research play a role there in terms of like, because if you go nonfiction, there's a certain bar you have to hit in terms of filling out pieces of the story and being able to tell the story in full. I'm wondering why, why turn your story to fiction and was research or availability of material, did that play into that decision at all for you?
1: Well, I think that the research showed me quite early on that the information we had was all very male um, it was all male I guess I mean, and you know mine a in town, lots of lots of men um but there were these women that um. I ended up making. I, I, I made a friend who had um, worked in the Blairmore, you know, in the Crosness Pass Museum, and um, she, say, early on, shared some materials that she had of the kind of t- communist, you know, strongly communist times in the 1920s and 30s in Blairmore. And there was this woman named Mary North that just really captured my imagination. Um, she's this Finnish. Finnish woman, she'd had children kind of before for World War One, And then, so she's kind of in her 30s, 40s, um, going into 50s. And what was she, we, we knew that she was a writer. She wrote for some of the labor kind of newspapers in Canada at the time. The Finnish people at that time, many of them had fled kind of after the white and the red armies had fought in Finland right after the First World War. So many of the Finnish folks in in Canada at that time were communist leading. Um, They lost the war in Finland and they came here. And so, you know, I was curious about all of that sort of story, obviously, of how Europe's, um, you know, the Europe. European thought of the late, you know, 19th century, early 20th century, as we start moving into, you know, the overthrow of the czar, right? All that time when, you know, Marx is first talking and all through that 50 years, so many of the folks that were working in Blairmore at the time were products of that with products of those conversations right their parents their grandparents had been you know had been workers that had moved into the late you know labor movement and so Mary North I guess kind of you know really was sort of really sort of told that story to me of, of the influence that she had from Europe and the way she brought that influence to to Blairmore which is of course what Our government and the British, you know, basically the British led, you know, RCMP at the time was worried about, right? They were really scared about all these agitators coming aliens, like foreign aliens, they called them non-British people. And um, so she really, you know, was sort of, she was the one that really drew drew me into this idea that I wanted to write about the women that supported the essentially the ecosystem that was required to build the kind of movement that was required for that little council to win like it did and we knew that there was I saw things like the women they were the fundraisers they were often the ones teaching the English classes so that the folks could actually communicate their you know ideological sort of stories they were the ones that were teaching there was children's camps um that were literally after school three days a week and the kids would go and they would learn about Marx and they would draw pictures about, you know, of Trotsky and then later on of Stalin and they would, you know, learn about they, they, even people from the people from Blairmore and in, I believe one of the women went even to the Lenin school, which was in Moscow at the time, where they taught people from Canada how to, you know, many, one of the agitators in, in, in my story, uh, who was a real guy, yeah, he came back having learned how to operate guns, how to do cartography and map out towns so that if they needed to share with the with you know, the the common turn or the communists in Russia, they needed to share where the train stations were and where all the different, you know, infrastructures were. They, those folks lived in Blairmore. They'd gone to the Lenin school. They were closely tied to Stalinist Russia and Mary North particularly was. And so all that to say is that I realized that I couldn't tell a story about women, um, really, and do it from the, with the material that, was on record um and so it just came down to saying uh, this is the story I want to tell and I, there's just not enough for me to actually pull it together a non-fiction book that really tells that story and so this has allowed me to build a composite characters two of the of the of the sex trade in the in the past right it's allowed me to build because you know for instance and you mentioned you talked about um books right and I actually found and maybe you're not finding the same way because you're talking about right you're dealing with writers like professional writers but like for instance there's this book called Madeline and it's an autobiography I've, I've got a million different memoirs from mostly women that have self-published from that time um, Madeline was a book by a sex worker that worked in the turn of the century in the 20th century right and so I've kind of basically been able to construct who I learned Leona Cudmore was from the transcripts which is very little I've kind of been able then to take Madeline's book you know who is anonymous we actually don't know who she really was and be able to take her story and tell her story in the context of Blairmore and not feel really too bad about it right because I, I feel like they're both reflecting an experience that really was there but it doesn't force me to do like to have the kind of rigor that's required of a nonfiction writer to like right. have these things line up with the timeline that I've got. So that's a very long answer to your question, but that's kind of how I got there. Um, got to got to fiction. And
0: yeah, no, it makes sense. And I mean, you. It's not to say that fiction means you have to change the rules, right? That's one of the freedoms of fiction is you can like sneak in as much truth as you want, and uh, it's sort of like it can be liberating in a way. Whereas nonfiction is so like. You're, you're so beholden to the facts that you're 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 scared about straying too far whereas in fiction you can sort of float around I
1: have a, a I have a whole section too like they, one of the other elements is the Kkk and the and the rise of the of their far right wing in Alberta at the same time and that was also driven by a lot of women but again they're not you don't get the materials and like when I went to the museum I got these basically stacks it was probably six inches of secret RCMP like files like the the fellow that had written the um, master's thesis had wiped up or like he FOI'd or whatever it is federally um he had gotten all sorts of materials from the the rcmp archives and they all say secret on the top and i read all of them but you yeah. know they mentioned women about six times Which is crazy. Like the women were teaching the children. The women were sewing the signs. The women were at the front of all the pickets. They literally were at the front because you know that was their strategy. They figured the police wouldn't kill the women in the same way as they might kill the men. So, Mm -hmm. so in this way, you know, it was just so clear that I I I needed some fiction. I mean, when it comes to your story, I mean, you never decided to go fiction. I guess because you had so much material. Would would you say that? Were you ever? Tempted?
0: Um, well, not. I think the, the thing about the story is it's so murky and so like, it's sort of intentionally hard to parse. Like everyone involved sp- speaks or, or affects this like faux royal persona. So it's all very straight faced, but very, so you're never really sure like to what extent are any of these people serious about this? Um, like there have been pubs that have been tried to be set up as redundant consulates in the UK but only to get around anti-smoking laws, you know? So there's all these things of like, where the government is sort of in called in to say like, can you rule on this? Like, is this pub allowed to do this? And and there's all this sort of gray area, right? So that's like the fun of the the story. And I, I thought what I could do that was useful, there's certainly fiction written about the kingdom, but it's usually the people who are already on the inside of it. And there's actually no shortage of people on the outside sort of forcibly trying to gain access to the inside Mm -hmm. not even from a coup necessarily but just like they want to be one of the gang and so I didn't want to do that um I also didn't want to sort of look like I was angling for a title by writing about it um which other people have tried to do as well so I thought what I could offer was like an honest and sort of comprehensive attempt to not even debunk, I don't want to settle the question of what's real and what's fake. I think that's actually, that would be a bummer. If to, mm. to rule on it, I think would be on, would be take a lot of fun out of it. So what I was trying to do is keep the spirit alive but sort of annotate it and itemize the history of it. Um,
1: so what's your most and, memorable research discovery? Do you have one?
0: Yeah, oh, we had that oh, in, we were talking about that ahead of time and it's a great question because um, like we were talking about before, I think one good one can really, like, animate you for a long time. There was a question, it's in the book, so I don't want to, like, itemize it too, or spell it out too clearly, but one of the things that people thought about, have fought about for the last 50 years, is there was this, the, the second King of Redonda was a poet named John Gosworth, and he was very charismatic, but uh, became an alcoholic quite young, and sort of, his life sort of fell apart um, in a bunch of different ways, and as the king of Redonda, he suddenly, he realized at a certain point in his life that that was the thing that had the most value in his life because he was in, he was unable to publish poetry. Um, he had sort of alienated a lot of people in his life. And so he, when he would like owe a lot of rent on his apartment, he would give the kingdom to his landlord in exchange for the rent, which is fine, but you can only do that once. The problem right. was John Gosworth did this like three or four times. He tried to he, he sold it to a, a bartender to settle a bar tab. Um, it actually was for sale on the front page of the times, like the London times, <laughs> there was a front page ad that said Caribbean kingdom, call this phone number. Uh-huh. Um, and people did, lots of people did. So when he died, there was this huge controversy about like, well, which one of these will, which one of these things is the real document. And sometimes they weren't even documents. Sometimes it was like a handshake, but he did sign blood packs. He did like write out these flowery sort of contracts and i was trying to find what does it say in his will because the whole when he received the kingdom the exact wording was he could only appoint a successor on his death so this was always the question of like well what was his final request we don't really he sold it at various times but i was like if i can find the will then i'll know well i'll have at least a better clue of like where his final indication went he wrote all these poems in the hospital where he addressed various people who came to visit him and called one of them like the King. And so there are all these clues. And so my quest, especially when I went to the University of Reading was to find the will. And I didn't find it there, but I later ended up buying the entire redundant archive of another King, which is now in a cabinet on the other side of me.
1: (laughs) This is Um, amazing, Mike, I'm so inspired. Yeah,
0: it's like, it's (laughs) huge and unwieldy. And now it's it's mine. Um, It can be unwieldy at my house. And uh, the tease is that I found the will in, in that archive. Amazing. And so after like years of looking, it, it was suddenly just there. And like, what a, th- yeah, what, what a, what a thrill it is. How, yeah. how about you? Tell me, tell me about one of your research discoveries.
1: Oh man. I mean, there's, I, there's just so many every day, there's sort of something new, but um, one of the, I think one of the like wackiest ones is I, 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 I went through all of the different, um, the different counselors I found because of course you could find more information on men and so I kind of started there and so all the counselors of the Red Council I looked for military records and the mayor who was the one that was kind of the most he ended up being kind of feeling that getting the most shade from this this blackmailing sort of thing um just because he was close friends with the police chief so the you know the the blackmailing really sort of looked bad for the mayor um and it wasn't always clear why and but my guess is because i mean the mayor was both close to him but then i found this so i found his army record and i learned um when he got syphilis and he got syphilis really bad like so bad that he like it was like about as bad as you could get syphilis and not die right and um And he also another fact in there was that he'd actually gone um, half blind because he was working under the tunnels of Hill 60, which is in France at the time, a lot of Canadian miners worked under tunneling down and then of course exploding <laughs> underneath the German, you know, German positions. And wow. so he'd actually gone basically one eye was completely blind and the other eye was half blind. And so these two things gave me this like every time I read new things about the council, and as I read the council minutes, right? Because you can they're they're all at the museum. So I read through all of their council minutes and things started to make sense. For instance, when they first became um, the council one of their very first bylaws was to actually require all the women in the brothel to get health checks every week. So the doctor, Dr. Stewart, every week and the police chief was then required to go to the brothel and check to make sure that they'd had their health checks. And of course, a guy who had syphilis really bad, you can see why he maybe wanted um, the women to have the health checks. And, uh, you know, I i figured out, you know, where his wife, his wife had worked in the, bro- in the brothel at one time. So you just kind of end up learning new things about this guy that you never maybe should know but that gave me a lot more uh, of an idea of how connected he was to the brothel and and he was certainly somebody who would have used it and, and 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 cared about the women to some extent right and so um But also had you know some disabilities which you know made some other elements in the council minutes make sense as well so so anyway that was sort of just you know some total surprise i didn't expect it and and uh, it's memorable well only because it relates to sex as well as relating to sex i learned the 1930s they had used lysol and Mm -hmm. they were worried of course about passing you know uh, the various diseases the time that were out of control and so they would actually smother Like they described in the court, they would smother Lysol, whatever, whatever body part was touching, whatever body part, they would basically just like bleach themselves down. Made me, you know, thankful for our times now and the various products we have that are not nearly as harsh as that. So anyway, I took that to a kind of a maybe dark place, but.
0: No, that's amazing. And that sort of thing, like you said, it can sort of animate or like give a lot of extra context into other parts of someone's life. I love thinking about those historical documents where they all have a purpose, right? Like people aren't just writing comprehensive sketches of everyone they meet for no reason. So when you read a court record or a newspaper account, sometimes they will just skip past stuff that would have been obvious to people at the time or not necessary to what the the point is. So you really have to get, you really need multiple ways into someone to really see their character in in any sort of like complex way. That's fascinating.
1: Well, in Newspapers.com, I, I found really amazing. Like, for instance, the Leona Cudmore, who was the madame who was charged, um, she ended up being the aunt of one of the, of, his name was, I, oh, geez, now I, I'm going to forget it. But he was like, he killed his whole family except for one for, no, he killed his whole family in um, Settler, Alberta. And so anyway, they were connected to this family. And I found it through, you know, newspapers.com, which also allowed me to find, Leona Cudmore, she worked with her sister in the brothel and, and while Le- Leona had died, I ended up being able to find May's you know, last name and I was able to follow her all the way through her life. You know, um, a- again, like, and it's just, just these random little things. If you have a name, all the material that is at our fingertips now on the internet um, can really get, you know, get us pretty far, you know, before we have to go into purchasing transcripts or, you know, going dive, diving deep into those primary sources that, that you're starting to find, right. Like, which are amazing and exciting, but also really, really expensive in terms of time and yeah. obviously money too at the end of the day, once you collect, add it all up. And I guess that you know, one of my questions for you was like, how have you funded your research? Do you have like a certain, you know, just honeypot? That... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because I think this is like something that I never understood from the outside. And like, to some extent, I still don't know how other people do it. But um, I was, I did, I got one grant from the Canada Council when I was in the I think it was, I think I described it as being like a writing grant, but it ended up being just as much a research grant. Um, they, that's how I got funding to go to the Caribbean in the first place. So that's the sort of expense that like is a total luxury and I'm very grateful. I was able to do that. Um, the other stuff was all just out of pocket and, um, sort of ad hoc. Like I was, I was lucky that I was in the UK and Reading was not far from where I was staying. Um, and have you I written think that's,
1: articles? that have, have you been able to sell articles at All Connected?
0: Yeah, but not like, I don't know. It's not, there's the way that my sort of, I'm, I'm full-time, you know, I think we both are full-time, you know, self-employed people. So um, you got to keep the lights on, you know, and and especially when you're researching or, or publishing at our level, like I, there's just not those huge grants that, like tenured university professors have access to. Um, so I think that's to your point about being very careful about knowing what you're looking for and trying to be efficient with your time because um, you know, I don't have the luxury of spending a week in an archive hoping to find something like it just, and that might be one of the reasons I ended up writing about my time in the archive was just to make sure that it felt like there was a function in being there. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, the, the funding was really just like, That's one of the reasons the book took so long to write. I first heard about this story in 2013 and the book's coming out this fall. So it's been like nine years of slowly pushing the ball forward um, and finding ways to to, to do it. But I, I think it was very tactical. Like when I was hiring researchers, it was like, I want you to look in this box. And unfortunately, the problem with that is you just don't know, you can't ever get the feeling of being exhaustive. Like I know, there's stuff I didn't look in. I know there's places I didn't go. I know there's 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 a small archive at the University of Victoria, which is like the closest archive of anything that I've I had I, that was out there. But I haven't been to Victoria, or I haven't you know have been able to get there in the last little while. So you have to sort of pick your shots and uh, and hope that it pays off. I guess. Um, yeah, not a not a glamorous answer. How about how about you? How do you make it all work?
1: yeah i was similar like i got a grant from access copyright like their marion heb um grant is specific to to research so for writers who are writing you know research projects that is something there but to your point it's not like academic level grant it's you know in the in the under 10 thousands right so um and then i have and then uh, i guess one of my processes has been I, i i've gotten grants from um some of the other granting agencies, so like Alberta, the um, Foundation of the Arts and, and Canada Council. And what I found in my process is that my um, writing and research have really intermingled. So like with the granting, you know, agencies, they they want you to tell them the phase, right? Well, I'm in draft one, yes, draft yeah. two phase, you know, I'm in the research phase, but I just found like, I mean, those are fair enough. We need them just for to be able to label it, but I really have found the research phase is almost like this base note under everything else, right? And I just find every every new draft I've got more questions. and I think coming back to the research question, how important it is, you know, I it would be fun someday to map all the research questions I've had and just to see how they began to concentrate, right? And focus a little bit. And so every new draft. It, I have more questions. And so then I add in the research. So I've been able to allow, like some of my writing grants have kind of been able to support my research um, just because I'm doing it in tandem at the same time. So like for instance, last week, in May, all my work is in May, basically the same day comes up over multiple years, same two days come up over multiple years. So Armistice Day, which becomes the Russian Revolution Day in Blairmore, and then also May Day, which is uh, international labor, And so both of those days come up. And so, um, in my latest writing grant, I, you know, requested, um, and they're funding me to go to the pass to Blairmore, both of those days, mostly so that I can do things like, you know, now we're into, I'm into research around, well, when does the sun come up? It's a mountain town just the internet tells me at 6 15 but I get there and it doesn't rise at the mine site until eight right and one of my key scenes is at the mine site at seven right so it just gives me sort of that kind of research I mean now we're I'm not in the archives anymore I'm on the ground I'm feeling like okay is the ground frozen could you dig could you have a garden oh shit I've got like shoots coming up in my book right they're already growing lettuce I can't have that right so it's like those are kind of the fact finding it's like in some ways it's the fact checking piece that I kind of connect to research in, in a pretty huge way as well. So so yeah, the funding's been really tricky, but being able to kind of pair it with maybe some other grants. And then I haven't been able to really evolve it into any other kind of article work. But I find that so much work that it's not always worth doing doing the the detailed pitches and trying to kind of carve out other other work from the research. But um, yeah. but I, I will say that I now feel like I have but I do have basically a three book series just from the amount of research so like that's kind of where I'm at now so like okay no I've got a I've got three books here and I'm now gonna focus in on you know the book I've got right now which is which is fun and and it's allowed me then to be able to just set aside all the interesting factoids I get for that Third book, I'm just like dropping, dropping it into like the third book document, like my Word document, and just leaving Mm -hmm. it there, so that I know if I ever get to that place, you know, probably not, but if I do, then I'll have all of that. That I'll be way ahead in terms of that research part. So, so yeah, I, 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 it's it's a really stressful part of the work, but also because ultimately the research could could take over, and I guess that's my other question for you. I know we're kind of nearing the time of wrapping, but. you know, we've talked about these breadcrumbs that become like ultimately like mountains of interesting facts that some ways nobody else really cares about. So how do you know when the research is done?
0: Uh, I was thinking about that today. I think that's the most important question. And I don't know, like I would love to talk to, like actual historians who do this kind of work and, and see like what, if there's like a consensus opinion, because. I mean,
1: Mike, you're publishing a book in the fall. Like this book is actually being published. You can't say it's done yet.
0: Well, it's, I mean, it's done. Cause it has to be right. But like, does it feel done that, you know, mm. I, like I was saying before, you never know that you have everything. I know that when you're doing smaller journalism pieces, what people say is like, when you start hearing the same answers again and again, that's when you know that you've you're at the end. And I think that for me, I did have experiences like that where I would I would come across a new source, something I that I had referenced Redonda that I didn't know about, and I would read their account of it, and I would realize, oh, I know where they where this is based off of. Because at first you think, oh, everyone has done original research, everyone has, you know, knows this story firsthand. And what you realize is that certain stories get retold again and again and and you start to see like okay they've described it this way which is the way they describe it in this other account I've already read and so you start to sort of like winnow out the secondhand versions and and figure out who actually knows something and who actually has talked to someone so once I started getting that sort of sense of things uh, I think I felt a little more confident but I don't know if you were writing like a book about I'm reading a book about Venice right now, for instance, and and if you want to write a book about Venice, there's sort of a canon of literature about Venice. It's not like you don't have to go looking for stuff that no one's ever found before, because it's sort of presumptuous, like that you're going to figure something out that hundreds and centuries of historians have not known about. Um, whereas in my case, I really felt like there was stuff in here that no one had ever written down before or stuff that a handful of people even cared to, to remember. And so it felt like an act of of preservation as much as anything else. And so in that sense, there's no shortage of things that are about to fall out of public memory or sort of generational memory. Like a lot of this is set in post-war England and those guys are old now. Like you talk to booksellers, like it it takes place, you know, on Charing Cross Road and Sissel Court and these places where like the book market used to be. And you go to those stores now and, and the current owners, even the sort of, older ones they never met these people in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s they were of course they didn't so I never I never felt that way for sure and I can only hope that this sort of ramshackle approach that my book takes it's not really meant to be like a definitive answer I'm very much expecting that there's pieces out there that I didn't quite find or uh or couldn't find in time and you know maybe other people will be able to add them into the story later on that It's a nice sort of communal histor- historical project. So I'm, I'm certainly not expecting to be the last person to, to tackle this subject. If anything, I'm hoping to bring it to like the attention of more people, because the audience has steadily dwindled over the decades. Mm. What about you? Your, your, your novel is in pro. Where are you at in your, in your progress? Um, so when I'm you-
1: in... I'm in kind of draft. I'm, I'm moving into draft three. So kind of a lot more fact checking and getting permissions. I use a lot of archival material in the book, um, basically riffing off of the police reports or um, I, I have this awesome little book called like um, the you know songs to fan the flames of discontent you know from 1923 oh, wow. so I've got like you know um and the police security bulletins there's just like straight up like so I've tried to like format everything it's very similarly to what the archival materials are so I'm at that stage now where I'm I'm needing to figure out like permissions and get a good sort of copy edit so like the plot's pretty much there. And now I'm kind of into this stage of more really refinement and line by line stuff. But I mean, as I said, I I took the research and I basically realized I have three books here so mm-hmm. all that material around the sex, you know, like the brothel, all that is actually book three. Book three. <laughs> so I mean I, I mean, I haven't even gotten there. So like, like there's an endless amount of research. And I guess I, I hear you in saying, like, really, you're working with a lot of primary sources, and you don't have a lot of experts that are going to be reading this book, going, "Oh yeah, that's not right." I mean, there will be the odd real literary nerd, right, who's like, "Oh well, I I did my whole thesis on so and so, and you mm-hmm. know, he said nothing." But um, I'm really conscious and feel like actually quite anxious about the the, the fact-checking part because there's a lot of people who've researched, you know, the Common Turn. There's lots of people that have researched, you know, um, these sorts of world, global political movements, and in my in my book is just a microcosm of that massive global, you know, movement that was happening in the 30s. So I feel really aware that you know, in the labor movement, of course, like lots of research has been done on, on that work, lots of researchers out there who do it. So you know, I think I was listening to a podcast by Ken, Ken Bullitt was talking about his, his process with, because his books often are historically, you know, they're historical and they often very, you know, detailed. So he actually pays, he pays like essentially 10 beta readers or something like that, who are specialists in the field of whatever his book is about. And they read it for that. They just, they read it like fact checkers. And so I, I anticipate that that will almost be my last phase of the research. We'll be just Mm -hmm. (laughs) handing it off to the experts and going like, I'm just a generalist here. I was the magpie picking up all this stuff, you know, tell me what did I get wrong? Right. Or what is at least sort of you know uncertain or that I might need to kind of dig a little bit deeper for so in my head that's where the research will end will be on the you know voice of the experts but maybe that just opens a Pandora box of really bonkers stuff but
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely oh that sounds fascinating it's always nice to have more material than you know what to do with yeah um we're gonna wrap up with uh, a couple of short readings and um and and then we'll close so Carissa did you want to go first
1: Sure. Okay, this is kind of, you know, this is the first time this has seen the light of day again, folks. So, uh, there we go. Okay. So, um, despite that it was almost May Day, once the sunset, cold air sailed from the Rockies Peaks and transformed Annie Jalmer's breath to fine crystals. Drawing her wool collar up against the next gust, she averted her eyes away from the other children waiting on the narrow street. She was not in a talking mood. Her favorite watching pole was before her, but she glanced back towards their three-room cottage before acting. Annie only climbed the electrical poles on their street after mother had fallen asleep, just outside the circle of light reserved for homework and music practice. With the window absent of silhouettes, she drew the back of her skirt through her legs and tucked it into her rope belt. Then she shimmied up the rough pole to wait just below the wires. The hum of the magic within the cords calmed her. When she'd asked Miss Bellzill what those sounds were, her teacher explained it was the sound of electricity, whispers of the tiniest protons and electrons urgently moving to help Blairmore's children finish their homework in the light. As she waited, Annie's body tingled with a similar frequency as the hum of the wire's electricity. It was with anticipation that she listened for the mine whistle. A single blast meant there was work for her father tomorrow. A single blast meant a shoulder of beef for Sunday lunch. Two blasts, there's no work. Meaning eager, eating meager marrow bones again. Shifting towards the east on the pole, she gained shelter from the wind and settled on the repairman's pegs. Her ragged nails picked at a large splinter in the tar-soaked wood until the whistle began. One. She froze, waiting for another breathy wail. Two blasts meant her father better bug her off or mother would have him shoveling coal into the stove all day as she boiled her water for the mine boss's wash. A double blast also meant that Annie once again was a harbinger of bad news. Every second night lately, she was forced to expose her father's failure to provide the food for the table, the fuel for the stove, the security for rent. The less work at the mine, the more Annie felt it was she who brought the heaviness into their hearts and the emptiness into their bellies. On this night... There was no second blast. Down she scampered from the pole and towards the cottage, feeling light. To work tomorrow, her announcement occupied her thoughts until another sound joined the whistling wind, a crashing from the direction of her grandparents' house across the street, then a shout from her Aunt Mary, her grandfather's raised voice, a slamming of their back porch. Annie changed course. Crossing the street, she ran up the freshly painted stairs of the cottage her father's father, mother, sister, and brothers lived jammed together like a pack of tailor maids. As she reached for the knob, her uncle Erno crashed like a racehorse from the house. She fell back, sat winded. Annie, oh my God, I'm sorry, Erno said, but he didn't stay to help her up. Instead, he went running into the middle of the street and looked wildly up and down. There were only children there. He returned to her. Did you see anyone run by just now? She saw many things on this street, but not that, not tonight, and she was forced to disappoint him. His large hands reached down under her armpits, then he lifted her as though she were four not 14. Annie's breath was back and they went into the cottage together just as her grandfather came in from the backyard, red in the face no one in the alley, he said. His Finnish mother tongue still wrestled with the English of his adopted home. Aunt Mary, tall and wide as Erno, kicked at the ground, and Annie's eyes widened at the glass that had blown inward from the small window over the kitchen sink. It lay in shards on the fir floor in a pattern spraying away from the red brick at the mess's centre. Carefully, Mary plucked the cause of the trouble from the glass it was half wrapped in yellowed newsprint and rough twine. Uncle Igor sat in his usual position on the Winnipeg chair couch, directly opposite the stove, stopped his rug hooking. He sighed deeply, then his hands began working the rags, so though his eyes remained fixed on the brick that Mary carried to the couch. Untying the bow, she unwrapped the paper on the quilted coverlet. It was an old copy of the Alberta Labour News, a paper her grandfather subscribed to, though this one was dated December 6, 1925. In thick smudged pencil, a headline was circled, "Clan, an enemy to the Labour movement. Aunt Mary's eyes narrowed, Uncle Erno and her grandparents stepped forward, their heads were round shadows against the paper. Mary read the editorial out loud, the other day, an advertisement in an Edmonton paper appealed for membership for the Edmonton branch of the Ku Klux Klan. It is an indication that this pernicious organization has raised its dirty head in the capital city of Alberta. And we may expect to see the fiery cross burning on one of our hillsides on some clear winter night and white hooded figures marching along our thoroughfares. We hope the charge of unlawful assemblage that has been used to send labor people to jail and be deported will be used against the Klan equally. The Klan mean- means enmity to the labor movement. It should be suppressed. A roughly sketched arrow indicated that Mary opened the paper, and as she did, they gasped. Annie's aunt quickly shut the paper and turned to push it into the stove before grandfather stopped her. We may want evidence of this later, he said. No one will be asking us for evidence, and if they did, they will not believe it. Mary's lips shut thin, and with a small nod at Annie, she clearly indicated to grandfather that they not speak of it anymore. But Annie had had no trouble reading the block letter message in the dim light. It said, we're not going away. This is our land. Go home, Reds. Without a word, she ran out the door to tell her father. And that's the beginning of the unnamed book.
0: Wow, that's the the actual opening?
1: Yeah, that's the opening.
0: Nice. Well done. That's awesome.
1: What do you have, Mike?
0: Um... This is from the book itself. Try not to be strange, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read uh, one, something from the research parallel story. So this is when I'm on vacation in England, and I very faux casually suggest to my partner Kate, who you know, um, hey, can I stop in at this archive? Uh, meanwhile, I had an appointment and everything, and knew exactly <laughs> what I was there to do. Um, So I'll just read a little bit from when I walked into this uh, library, uh, special collections library, hoping, hoping to find something. The doors in front of me unlocked with a click and I walked down a twisting hallway that the library shares with the Museum of English Rural Life before reaching the special collections library and its information desk. You must be here for the Gosworth material, the librarian said, gesturing over one shoulder when she saw my foreign driver's license. Behind her, on the left-hand side of a cluttered countertop, sat three large banker's boxes that visibly sagged with material. A fourth sat on a nearby plastic rolling cart. I signed in, checked my jacket and bag, and lugged the first box over with me to the far end of a communal research table. By this time, several other researchers were getting settled around me with their own books and documents. Every single one of them, I noticed, about Samuel Beckett. It turned out that the University of Reading was renowned for its Beckett material, which at more than 7,000 items was the largest such collection in the world. You couldn't really argue with that level of dedication to a Nobel prize winner, but for a writer of Gosworth's meager profile, even the shelf space required for these 18 boxes of material suddenly sounded difficult to justify. How often I wondered were people really dropping by to look at the rough drafts of poems that even in their finished state, almost nobody read? A nearby sign noted that the library closed at 5 p.m. As long as I could get through each box in about 25 minutes, I'd be done with time to spare. Besides, I wasn't here to futz around with every single piece of paper, only the ones related to Redonda. I lifted the lid off the first box and began pulling items out. The first thing I grabbed was a stack of finished books, including Gosworth's personal copy of his collected poems. For reading, revising, and annotating, according to a note on the title page and it had been absolutely pummeled with use. Even its illustration of the author had been self-defaced with blue ink, or maybe the graffiti had been done by someone else. Another note on the title page said that the book was at one point, quote, on loan to author's wife. Underneath these books were stacks of newspaper clippings, drafts of essays, and several full notebooks, as well as an assortment of odd documents like faded gin advertisements, restaurant menus, tissue paper, and torn halves of envelopes, all crawling with fragments of unpublished poems. Wherever Gosworth went, it seemed he was writing on almost literally any surface available to him. Despite my plan to stay on task, I found myself getting distracted, not just by the volume of the archive, but also its tactility. This was the first time I'd been this close to Gosworth's actual handwriting. I hunched over the desk and raised page after page to my face to scrutinize the indents his pen left on the notebook paper. Then let my eyes wander down to the corners which were full of doodles jotted down addresses and phone numbers and banal notes that only gosworth himself could have deciphered or cared to the man had been dead for half a century but everything inside the box still held a residual warmth as if gosworth had only just wandered away from his desk and was due to return at any moment as i worked my way down to the bottom of the first box i felt a jolt of voyeuristic giddiness Being so close to another writer's raw materials was an addictive experience, and I wanted more of it. Every scrap of handwriting, no matter how banal, felt like being led a little further into Gosworth's private life. These were intimate, fragile documents that existed in one place and one place only. If you wanted to see them for yourself, you had to come to Reading. I thought I was making pretty good time, too, but once I'd reassembled the box's contents and placed the lid back on top, I glanced at my phone and realized that more than an hour had already passed. According to my schedule, I was supposed to be well into box three by now. I made a silent prayer that the first box had been an outlier and that the next one would be less tightly packed, or else that it would contain some kind of system of organization that would allow me at a glance to zero in on the Redonda material. No such luck. There was a more obvious order to the papers and notebooks inside box number two, but even figuring out what decade a particular piece was written in required study. Then there was the matter of determining what important actually meant for my purposes. A copy of his poetry book, Lyrics to King Cup, with a lengthy note from Gosworth's mother written across the flyleaf seemed unlikely to be useful, but I had to spend several minutes squinting at Gosworth's faded penciled handwriting to be sure. Letters referencing Sheol, the first king of Redonda, seemed essential the first few times I found them and progressively less so the dozens if not hundreds of times afterwards. Several notebooks from the 1950s and 60s, meanwhile, contained poems with the telltale words Redonda or Juan in the title, but few of them seemed to contain any significance beyond the use of a familiar nickname. As time went on, I also grew frustrated with myself. As a first-time archive user, I could tell I was making rookie mistakes, stacking folders at random after removing them from boxes and not taking thorough enough notes on those pieces I had already looked at. Research, it turned out, was a skill in its own right, and I did not possess it yet.
1: Oh, my God, you just described the archives and the (laughs) crazy feeling and excitement and, like, and the anxiety, too, that's there, right? Like, the anxiety of not getting it all and not writing it down enough. And um, I know we're in time, but, Jason, can we just say, I want to ask one more question about, like, ultimately, what have you learned around, you know you went into it feeling this sort of insecurity when it came to actually organizing your work, organizing this research. Did you ever come to a system that ended up feeling good that people can kind of learn from or?
0: Uh, I don't know that I'd recommend it to anybody else. Um, It's sort of, I don't even know if I would use it for like another project like this, to be honest. It sort of suited the needs of of what this needed to be. I I don't use, like, a software or anything for, like, organizing notes, so I just print out everything. I have a bunch of manila folders, and I try to coordinate things as I go. I I guess my only advice to people would be to go slowly um, researching, and then I write slowly as well. I really try and make sure that everything I'm... It's like a digestion process. Like, you need the material to sit for a while so that you can sift it and sort of know where it's supposed to go um but there are certainly like the anxiety nightmares you have in in research are like you wake up in the middle of the night and you remember a quote but you don't know where it is and you don't know where you saw it and that happened to me all the all the time doing this so it was just a very careful methodical sometimes uh irritating process <laughs> but yeah i just i work with papers so i like spreading stuff out on the floor i like having folders of ca- and categories where i can just flip through things um and, and I, I, I don't know if I, I, think I might try something different next time, but for this project, for whatever reason, once you pick a system, you sort of have to stick with it too. So I, I think mm-hmm. I accidentally picked a system without realizing it at first. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How about you? Any, any tips for the people?
1: Uh, I think maybe the, I tended to use photos a lot, so I oh, yeah. will take a photo, even if I'm looking at something on microfiche or, you know, the, or paper in the archives, or, you know, even, um screenshots on computer so then and then I I've got just a file that's like all the photos and then I have basically a document that's part of my Scrivener document which is my draft Um, and of course Scrivener has you know research files that you can use and I've kind of I haven't been really hardcore about the categories but I have kind of logged interesting facts that I took pictures of and I've kind of logged them with Keywords, I hope that eventually I'll use again and then put like the date and time of the photo. So, so kind of the photos actually end up almost holding all the material and then I've kind of got this shorthand sort of document that's that is searchable because I was worried about paper just not being searchable like not being able to make your yeah. point about the quote um I think it's worked okay you know and it's a bit clunky going into my photos and having to search back to July you know 2019 or whatever um but it has made me feel a bit more relief in the in the archives that I don't have to photocopy at all that I kind of got it at least in digital copy it's it's not For publication obviously either so that's another benefit but yeah anyway well it's been so awesome to talk to you Mike I've learned things and I can't wait to read your book where can you find it where can you buy Uh, it and when
0: it will be published on September 13th I believe of this year uh, by Biblioasis so it'll be available at fine bookshops all across North America
1: and thanks to Read Alberta for sponsoring this author on author talks And Jason, thanks for coordinating at WGA.
0: I don't know if he's mic'd up,